Hello, welcome to Mind and Movement, the podcast, where we discuss mindful movement through dance and through life. Today, I am sitting down and having a conversation with my friend and housemate Alex Ebolo. He danced with SeaWorld and also danced with Culture Shock, and we've been friends for three years. And it's a very comfortable conversation, even though we get into some heavy topics such as gender bias, accountability, shame, creativity, and a lot more, actually. This is also the first episode that I recorded back in January, and honestly, there was no one else that I could have done it with. Thank you so much for listening, and let's get right into it. Today, we have the amazing Alexander Ebolo. I have known Alex since my third year of college, and he's just an overall amazing, wonderful person. And also, we live together, so there's that. I'm just going to let him introduce himself. I've also known Justine since my third year because we're the same year. And, you know, for knowing her this long, everything she said about me is true. Um, and I'm pretty great. And I'm pretty happy to be here. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, my name is Alexander Ebolo. Um, but my pronouns are he, him. But I'm also fine with, like, she and they as long as I'm the center of attention. And a land acknowledgement. I reside in the occupied lands of the Kumeyaay people, also known as San Diego, for those at home who do not know. I guess talk a little bit about first your dance background and then your educational, academic, anything else that makes you you. I started dancing, I remember, in elementary school. The, like, I guess after school program or daycare, whatever it's called would host these like quarterly shows where we would learn choreography and then like do it for our parents but yeah and that was really fun and then um in high school I realized that you know I wasn't most physically fit and I decided that I wanted to be active again but you know I don't want to like run so I was like I'm gonna dance because that was fun in elementary school so I started dancing Long story short, I started dancing when I was 17. Or maybe 16. No, that was a lie. I fucking lied to you. I started dancing like my sophomore year of high school. I feel like, I don't know when most people say they started dancing, but that's when I started going to a studio and taking classes. So yes, I started at this studio, originally just taking popping and freestyle classes. And then the studio owner slash the other uh, studio teachers was like hey this kid is a really fast learner let's expand his repertoire of movement oh and also you know i don't know if everybody knows this but in the studio competition world there's like probably like a total of five boys like there's very little boys it's like predominantly women who are mostly competing in studios so it's like when you when competition choreographers find male dancers they're very inclined to want to nurture their growth which I have not acknowledged. I personally acknowledge as like, this is a male privilege. Like, even though I'm like a, mi- a gender minority in the studio world, I still got a lot of attention, even if I wasn't even like the best dancer. But because I was a guy, I was most likely the only guy in the piece. Therefore, I got more attention and my growth was more centered. But I just wanted to acknowledge that it was a privilege to have like, to be the center of attention often. Fun fact, this is also just like me talking about gender politics in the studio world. But like, being I guess favored by the choreographers because I'm a guy I was also like favored in terms of like blocking so I think subconsciously my teammates would also be like really excited to see me because they're like "Ooh, he's gonna get a lot of parts which means he's gonna need someone to partner with so like everyone would be really excited if I'm in a piece because that means more opportunity for them to share that spotlight because I'm gonna be the only boy which means I'm gonna be the one lifting them slash partnering so yeah, I was a studio dancer when the choreographers was like, we want to expand your movement repertoire. That's when I immediately started doing ballet, contemporary, jazz, tap. There are these random categorical splits between modern, contemporary, and lyrical. But fun fact, they're like more or less the same thing, just like different eras in movement throughout dance history and development. But for some reason, we arbitrarily assign like these stylistic components to them, but they're all the same. Fast forward to 2017, me two years into community college was like hey 
I don't know if I want to major in linguistics or like STEM anymore because school's kind of boring. But you know what's really fun? The dance classes that I take every night. So then I, t- I like had this conversation with my parents. I was like, hey, just want to like check in with you but and like also ask for your blessing. But I don't want to do the other things that I said I was going to study. I just want to dance and like whatever makes you happy. So I transferred to UCSD to major in dance. Um, got my bachelor's right out of UCSD. I started working at SeaWorld as a performer. I was also dancing with Culture Shock San Diego and then the panoramic happened. And because of this pandulce, you know, no longer performing, just kind of just dancing at home. Sometimes not really on my day off the end. Thank you for that 10 minute long (laughs) introduction. Okay. Alex's dance background includes joining a studio at the age of 16 and being favored because he was the only, one of the only few men at the studio. And so he was the center of attention for a lot of it. And so that already shows that even though dance is a pretty women-dominated art form, I would say, that there are still gender biases within dance as well. So I guess because we started talking a little bit about gender politics or gender biases, Besides in that studio, are there any other instances that you've noticed within the dance community in relation to gender biases? Could you repeat the question? (laughs) To give a little bit more context about our dance scene, we are currently in San Diego, and so we're very largely a part of the San Diego dance community. And we were also on a collegiate team, and I feel like there's a different culture within collegiate dancing as well as San Diego dancing. So I guess the question is, do you notice that there are gender biases within both the collegiate dance scene and the San Diego dance scene? And if so, what are they? And what is the solution to that? When I hear that question, I feel like the thing that sticks out to me most is just gender roles. And I feel like within dancing, you know, historically dancing has been heavily gendered. But even like looking at the community today, I feel like there's so many systems of, pr- of oppression that can be reflected in the dance community. But something that is most prevalent through my own lens, from my own experiences, is just like the perpetuation of gender roles. Like men can only dance these kind of parts and women can only dance these kind of parts. And if there's a partner piece, there has to be a man and a woman. And the man always has to be lifting situation. I feel like that's across the board with various dance forms, both like in quote unquote hip hop or even in the contemporary world. And then if people were to to break these gender roles, it would be very queer of them. Queer isn't like the umbrella term of like LGBTQIA plus, which is really cool and really empowering. But I think it's still very othering where it's like, why do I have to subscribe to these gender roles? And if I'm not subscribed, then I'm immediately doing something queer like why can't it just be normal that I can be in any role why do they have to be roles at all breathing and talking is really hard this is one choreographer that I really really love C.D. Weinberg one of my one of the professors from UCSD she whenever I see that she choreographs she uses men and women different sizes different races different colors but I know that she in her choreographic process she makes it a point to not have them be stuck to specific pairs but like they alternate who's being the partner who's being lifted and it's very like intentional and like we're gonna make sure that the girls are sometimes dancing and the guys are sometimes dancing or there's a girl and a guy or like there's three of them dancing i feel like something that i notice specifically in the contemporary community is there's more of an intention between how something is being blocked in a way that i guess dismantles assumptions from the audience whereas in the collegiate scene it's choreographed in a way where it's like you want to appeal to the assumptions being made by the audience already if that makes sense i think to backtrack a little bit because i realized that we jumped in a little too deep what is gender and then what is quote biological sex so i so of course there's like all this discourse and like everything's super radical Um, I personally think that both biological sex and gender are socially constructed. A lot of people subscribe to the idea that biological sex has to do with your, of course, biology in terms of chromosomes, your secondary sex characteristics, um, the hormones you have, 
but even looking at all these different things that could align to be a gender not everyone has all of those features that make up what is considered to be a female or a male um it's all based off of what people perceive similar to like it's 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 definitely something that could be analogous to race where it's like race is a social construct in that there's so much diversity within one population let me not digress there's so much diversity within what a male can be and what a male is i feel like it doesn't do humans justice to say that there's not only just two types of genders but that gender can be or two types of sexes or genders but like I feel like it's not the most productive to put them in separate boxes as well as boxes at all. I like the idea of like spectrums and directions where it's like I identify towards like a masculine identity rather than just a boy because what does a boy mean to me versus to what does a boy mean to you? Because I feel like when you think about gender, a man in a dress is still a man, but then maybe it doesn't mean that they're a man based off of how they're expressing self or a man with doesn't have to have a penis to simplify everything something that i read a long time ago is sex is what is between the legs and gender is what's between the ears in the sense it's like what you feel versus what you have on or in your body gender being the one that you feel in a very holistic radical sense both of them are just social constructs because it's very relative to the culture that you're participating in even like biologically because you know there is it's it's a spectrum and i feel like it's very like contextual where the line is between what is considered intersex versus what is a man versus what is a woman i think something that's been coming up recently is that within psychology and within the human mind we have the tendencies to put people under categories and what we're learning more and more so is that these categories really don't capture the entire human experience and human differences. And so one solution, um, my professor, Dr. Lindsay Powell, was actually referencing Star Trek, where in order for humans to put ourselves under one big category of human being, um, they had to introduce an alien. And once they introduced an alien, people could see that like all of human being belongs under this one big category of human rather than these subcategories of race or gender or anything else that people use to split people up. So in some sense, this is a tangent, but I do think like the answer to or to start to fix our understanding of what gender is, we have to start kind of changing our understanding of what categories are. And instead of having like the fixed mindset of like, oh, I have this category and that only people belong in these category, we need to be able to have flexible categories. And it's entirely possible. I feel like I used to think that it wasn't. And for so long, the literature in psychology as well has always said that like, you're incapable of change, especially when your brain fully matures, which people usually say that it's around the age of 25. And that is largely proven to not be true because people are capable of change and as long as we believe that we're capable of change we do change i guess when we see gender discrimination within the dance community what is something that we can do to help correct that i feel like connecting gender discrimination to the idea of like flexible categories so something that i'm re-listening to is an audiobook by ibram x kendi how to be anti-racist and he talks about how race is a social construct but more than just being something that's socially constructed it's a construct from power and i feel like gender was constructed in the same way out of power in that like because of the patriarchy it's we have these constructs of what is less than and what is greater than as in like the male identity is the superior one because of the patriarchy so discrimination exists when the there's a lack of flexibility and boundaries because we consolidate all of our ideas or assumptions about what a man should be and if someone is outside of that then they're discriminated because they're not being what a proper man is and then because this is a construct of power anybody that's less that is not a man is less than which includes being a woman or being not the correct kind of man so the question was how do we deal with gender discrimination and the answer was to have more flexible categories now do you think that this is a mindset that we can impose on other people i think define impose on other people 
is this something that we can force somebody to do or is it something that they have to realize on their own? It's a very loaded question because I feel like the obvious answer is like you can never force anyone to do anything. It's kind of you always have to allow people to arrive it arrive there on their own, but you can definitely push them in certain directions, similar to how we were talking about how social media has all of this influence in terms of what is being like what the algorithm is showing you pushes you in a certain direction. Redo. I don't know why I started the sentence that way. I believe that if you are committed to dismantling the patriarchal system of oppression, finding ways to actively dismantle these inflexible categories will eventually encourage others to have flexible categories. This is a tangent, but I do feel like it, it has to be asked. For men and for people who are in positions of power, it might be hard to understand and it might be even a fear that they have because you are telling them that you know they contributed to these systems of oppression and it's something that is really hard to come to terms with i guess like how do we try to or should we even try to help these men feel less shame around contributing to these systems of oppression my immediate thought with that was dismantling the stigma behind mental health because I feel like when it comes to accountability or like social justice or doing better um, for the individual, it's kind of you have to accept that you're not a perfect person and that's okay and that you're worthy of growth and that you're capable of growth, which I feel like is super like radical in the sense that you have to normalize um, mental health and self-care and self-love, which I feel like like intersects with the idea of like dismantling the gender binary situation everything intersects at some point but specifically I feel like when it comes to I guess supporting certain men in their growth to escape this destructive patriarchy the first step would to be accept that like hey maybe you maybe you contributed to the system but you could do differently moving forward and it's scary but it'll be better for yourself and it'll be better for everyone around you in terms of what you believe a safe space is. I really like that. To add on, because I think there are some very popular terms that have been thrown around a lot, especially on social media. So to talk a little bit about what shame is, what accountability is, and I guess kind of tying back to the old, the other question, which is how do we encourage people to have accountability over shame? Shame is something that everyone is capable of feeling but it's definitely encouraged through socialization obviously because everything is a construct so if you feel like you're no longer in this inflexible category you'll experience this sense of shame and I feel like this applies to more than just gender just it applies to how you perceive yourself like how you perceive yourself should be a flexible idea because sometimes we again we make mistakes and that's okay but if you were to do something that's outside of what you think you should be then you'll fear you'll experience this sense of shame um i can't give you a definition but that was like context so that's like good enough probably and then accountability again being described in the form of context rather than definition i feel like accountability is what someone has to do in order to accountability i don't that's a difficult thing to define off the top of your head you know like some things you're able to just like understand based off context and that's just how we live throughout the world and someone's like can you define it and then you're like no (laughs) but i know how to use it um but in the book that is listening to by faith g harper uh they're talking about how there's a difference between accountability and responsibility and like responsibility is something that can be shared but accountability is something that's deeply personal and something that you have to work on yourself okay so from what it sounds like to me shame is something that is very inflexible while accountability encourages flexible thinking okay i think shame is when we overgeneralize about our entire human being to the mistake that we made or to a failure that we encountered, created. While accountability is realizing that all humans make mistakes and we should be taking ownership over our actions as much as we can. And to reference the book that Alex was reading, it is called How to Be Accountable by Faye G. Harper and Joe Bile. 
And they give the definition that accountability is ownership of our choices and behaviors and the impact they have in the world, regardless of the intent. And so do you agree or disagree with the idea that you can't really hold people accountable? You can only create the circumstances that push them towards accountability? Yes. I feel like I think in mainstream social media, we talk about holding certain people accountable. And I feel like the definition that was shared is like kind of different than the context it's used in, but it's still like correct, at least in my eyes, because in talking about how we were working with this organization and creating a policy, you can't force people to do things. So you can't say like, we'll hold you accountable, but you can say that you will be accountable to our policies. And I feel like that's typically what's implied when you say that we're going to hold these cops accountable for their actions because it's not like we the people are holding the cops accountable, but it's like these cops should be held accountable to the law because they killed someone they shouldn't have killed. Whoa, plot twist, we're getting political. Do you feel like shame is ever a useful tool? Yeah, I think, okay, personally, if you're experiencing shame on an, like an internal sense, I feel like it could be useful. I feel like every emotion is useful because from the books that I've been reading, all by Faith G. Harper, all emotions that you experience tell you something about yourself. And shame can mean that going back to the idea of like flexible categories or like constructs, it means that one of your constructs had a seemingly inflexible thing. So you're experiencing shame. And I feel like you could use this as a tool to either make this a flexible bladder well what bladder (laughs) you can use this to adjust this category to be more flexible period and you could also use this shame as an awakening that hey maybe this behavior that you're doing that's causing the shame needs to be adjusted and in the same way i feel like something that happens is like public shame where it's like public call outs that's a form of shame essentially it's like use it's supposed to be a tool where it's like hey We're letting you know that we, the public, don't agree with your behavior, so that needs to be adjusted, or you need to repair the harm that you've done in some way. So I do believe it can be a tool, but in the same way, like a useful tool, but it could also be a harmful tool because like going back to like historically, shame is also like homophobia. Um, When I think of homophobia, I think of internalized homophobia, the internalized sense of shame Um, that a lot of queer people experience because they've been socialized to believe that their existence is not okay. So I think that, you know, shame is a useful tool, but I don't think this tool is inherently good or inherently bad. It's just a tool. As with most emotions. That was pretty good. So I was listening to this podcast by ASAP Science called Side Note, and they're talking about how, you know, everyone experiences boredom because we're all running out of things to do in the middle of this Panasonic. Well, I mean, you should be experiencing boredom because you should not be leaving your house, um, period. I feel like I'm just going to speak. I don't want to like speak to their experience because, you know, they have their own lives. So I'll speak to my own. Um, I've noticed that I have these. Ooh, also they're talking about Uh, motivation to contrast boredom they're talking about how motivation is ephemeral so we shouldn't be waiting to be motivated to do something you should just like incorporate doing what you need to do into your routine or else you might find yourself waiting forever or you might find that um, you don't have enough motivation to finish it Um, that kind of situation going back to boredom something that I found that I want to talk about that I thought was interesting was that For some people, boredom is used as like a motivator to do something like, oh, I'm bored, so I need to fix that. Mm -hmm. Whereas I feel like there are, well, at least me personally, I feel like if I'm bored, I'm like, ugh, I guess I'm just going to have a boring day. Like like, there are people who are like, oh no, I'm at a low point, so let me like take, like, let me give myself some love and like go for a run or do something that normal people do. But then there's other people who are like, I'm experiencing boredom and then it just spirals down where it's like, well, this is just gonna be a boring day. I'm just gonna have to like sit on the couch and just do nothing. Stare at the wall maybe. Okay, because for me, 
Boredom is definitely like an emotional state, even though it's like low activation, like it's still considered an emotion for me. And I'm also a very big believer on like emotions being functional and like motivates you to do something. So I'm definitely the, the kind of person where like I'm bored, like I'm going to go and do stuff now. So that's me. And I think when we do experience certain emotions, like I used to really overgeneralize. I wake up in the morning and how I feel in the morning is going to dictate how the rest of my life, my, the rest of my day is going to go. <laughs> the rest of my life. No, uh, how I wake up and feel in the morning is going to dictate how the rest of my day is going to go. And I used to really have this belief and it doesn't, it doesn't serve me in any way because why am I letting one moment in the morning encompass the rest of the 24 hours that I do have um so that that was just something I wanted to add I guess I guess the healthier reaction to boredom is to get up and do something so if you're feeling bored in the pandemic yeah it's very normal one and two maybe just think about activities that you can do that doesn't involve other people (laughs) like recording this podcast like (laughs) Uh, I'm just saying, like, I really don't need to be leaving my house to be recording this podcast. This is so unrelated. Um, I think to tie into the, the, the stuff that I can talk about, where boredom really ties into creativity. And so does motivation, actually. And I think the problem here is that we're all bored. And we need to have creative problem solving in order to address this. So what is something that we don't usually do that we can start trying, I think, is the question to ask ourselves. Because creativity doesn't just exist in arts. It exists in science. It exists in everyday life. And the more creative you are, the better you are at solving your problems, whether that's like an emotional state or anything external that's happening to you. Am I bored or am I just burnt out from working six to seven days a week? Or is boredom for me just motivational burnout? What's the difference between bored and being burnt out? When I'm burnt out... It's usually because I did so much previously that like I feel like my emotional pool, if you will, like if I think about it as a pool, that is just like drained. So that's how I feel when I'm burnt out. When I'm feeling bored, it's like there's a pool and it's just sitting there for me. This is not based in science, by the way. This is just a personal story. (laughs) Um, And also I was listening to work life by adam grant and he also asks this question for burnout like are you just stressed or are you just burnt are you burnt out like where is this line and that's a really hard question and i think that line is different for different people so just things to think about and answers i don't have but that's okay because we're all just learning (laughs) okay i don't know if you have an answer to this but i think my question would be how do we hang on to our mental health during this pandemic I don't think there's a right answer. I don't, well, there's definitely the wrong answer out there. Just suppress everything that you're feeling and it'll just all go away. I think definitely finding someone or some way to express how you're feeling. Number one recommendation is therapy because people get paid to do that. If you, um, fun fact, if you're working at least 20 hours a week at Starbucks, you are eligible for Lyra. That is where I found my therapist, Lyra. But yeah. I think reminders are always great just in all facets of life, but especially when it comes to like mental health. I think I I find myself every day reminding myself that, you know, this sucks and it feels like a long time, but it's not going to be forever, period. I guess, would you say that your approach to this kind of sucks, but it's not going to be forever, is that being hopeful? As with all things in life, I think it's not inherently good nor inherently bad, but it just depends on your lens. I feel like that's something I tell myself when it's a hard time. So it's like it's a hopeful sentiment, but also something that I can tell myself when it's like a good time because it's like, oh, this is not going to last forever. So I should cherish this moment. You know, everything is ephemeral situation. So cherish the good things. And ephemeral just means like it's temporal. (laughs) Why am I using these words? So I feel like going through life with that mindset, it's essentially just cherish the good things because it's not going to last forever and endure the bad parts because it's not going to last forever. I feel like this is definitely a period, specifically talking about this, Pendle say that this is a pause on whatever you had planned for 2020 slash 2021 
and it's an opportunity to reevaluate what you want out of life slash how can you contribute to your community something that i just want to add on to that because i feel like it's related i've never thought of it as like everything or i have but not in that way like everything is temporary i think something that i always think is like everything has a duality so like there's always a good and a bad to everything we do and if we can start accepting that we can try to start looking a little bit more at the positives without trying to just shove away the negatives and I think tying into that is like the question of like toxic positivity what is that first of all and how do we kind of drive ourselves away from that toxic positivity as I have come to conceptualize is this culture slash stigma about how the world needs to only embrace the positive and suppress all the negative. I feel like I want to say it's like definitely deeply reflected in like a capitalist society where the the best thing that you can sell to someone is happiness. So like in every commercial you'll see, you'll always see like these these actors and models um, smiling because you want to be happy, so you want to buy that product. But it's definitely applicable outside of capitalism because it's rampant in every culture. But that is where I most see it in my personal sphere of society. Uh, I wanted to ask, like, do you think, do you think that there's, ooh, besides the fact that like positivity sells, is there ever? <laughs> this is such a tangent, but like, is there ever a time that negativity sells? I feel like this ties back to the topic of shame being a tool. I think negativity sells in the same way that shame can push you to buy a product because it's like. My first thought is thinking about body positivity. There's shame cells in the sense that you don't want to look like the before picture. You want to look like the after picture. There is this idea of being our best self or our most authentic self. And I feel like there is a lot of confusion around authenticity because often it's like, oh, then I can just feel like being an asshole and then I can be an asshole. Um, so what does authenticity mean? I think that... Whatever you do in any way, nor it's not inherently good nor inherently bad, you are being authentic. I think it just depends on the context in which you mean by being authentic. Because, you know, in terms of like pragmatism and different social circles, people will act certain ways. But sometimes it's very noticeable or I feel like it's a common trope to observe your friend acting off or uncharacteristically around a an assumed social circle. Whoa, that was really generalized for no reason. Just call me out. <laughs> no, but it's, it's a common belief. What was the question? Authenticity. Authenticity. So I think authenticity is to just exist as you are. What was the second question? To exist as I am. Like, if everybody is perceiving me as an asshole, and I'm like, well, that's just who I am. Like, is that authenticity? And then I guess how do we how do we mediate the gap between who we are versus the impact that we have? I think it just depends on who you want to be, because I think authenticity is existing as you are. But if people perceive you to be an asshole, perception is reality. One, two, do you want to be an asshole? And I feel like in terms of like accountability, you're accountable for how you are. It sounds, it's like, of course, there are these like exceptions slash it's super nuanced, but you are accountable for how you're perceived in the same way that you're accountable for the impact your actions have. And this relates to authenticity <laughs> because your impact is part of how you are existing in this world because your existence impacts other people. So I guess my question is, to what extent... I, I mean, I know this is different for everybody, but I think like to clear the air a little bit, to what extent should we care about how other people perceive us? Because if we cared about everybody's perception, then that's a lot of burden on our end. So how do we, I guess, find the middle ground to that? I think if you are someone who is a proponent, an advocate of peace, love, unity, and respect... <laughs> You will want to be someone that could support others in your social circle in creating an environment that is both loving for yourself and others. So when, in terms of what your question was, 
to what extent should we care about what other people think of you? It should be if you care about, you should redo. Long story short, I think you should prioritize the perspective of the people you love, but recognize the people you are impacting and um, have the person you want to be be a guide to who you should listen to in terms of how you want to align yourself with what that ideal self is to tie into that because we were talking about it earlier i feel like there's a big sometimes there exists a gap between our ideal self and who we are currently how do we minimize this gap i think you have to learn the skill to identify that there is a gap which is what what is the skill to identify this gap i don't know perception circumspection circumspection no but that's a real word self-awareness yeah self-awareness that's the word i was looking for that was the skill that i was looking for to minimize the gap you need self-awareness i think a more difficult question aside from like what is the skill but is how do you apply the skill like if you have self-awareness how do you how i think something that people have yet to find an answer that is applicable to everyone in every context is what are the steps to close that gap because i feel like in terms of thinking about steps to dismantle systems of oppression and be or do anti-racist things i feel like there are always like shifting paradigms not to say like don't try at all but it's like to be mindful that even if you think now you're doing the right thing be flexible in your idea of if it truly is what is the right thing so kind of tying into it like being open to feedback and also realizing that although you may have a good impact now in the long run it might not be good and similarly you might have a bad impact now but in the long run it might actually end up being a good thing okay something that i've been thinking about both in related to that came up from one of the faith g harper books and also just from the show magicians on netflix originally aired on wi-fi there's this character who essentially who essentially was a child molester and he spends his like almost basically almost eternity in torture and then the the main characters find him and i feel like at least how what i perceived from the from watching the show is there is this unspoken conflict between is this character redeemable because he feels remorse and he recognizes that what he did a long time ago was not okay. Do you, I think philosophically, do you believe that people are redeemable if they've done incredible harm? I think that people are redeemable even though they've done incredible harm, but they are only redeemable when they realize that they've caused that harm. And then tying this into one of the scenarios that Faith G. Harper shares is Spoiler alert for those who plan on reading whichever book I'm talking about, because I don't know which book I'm talking about. But, you know, it might not even be one of her books. But anyways, (laughs) this ties into, like, I guess, an intersectional lens of ableism. But there's a man who has autism. And his whole life, it was very difficult for him to find someone to date. Because, you know, people are very ableist. So that's also, like, social cues are a thing that are difficult for him to understand. And... You know, with that being a thing, it's also for the people he talks to, it's hard for them to understand that. So he's had trouble with success. And then one day he goes on to this like online chat and he finds someone who he feels he can really connect to. And they like have this relationship. Spoiler alert, this woman that she that he's talking to is underage and he's put into jail for whatever the thing is. And he like realizes like, oh, this is bad. He wasn't like aware that this is something that's not okay he recognizes that he doesn't want to do this kind of harm to his community he's been to all of these i guess trainings and he's i guess more for lack of better words he's suffered the consequences and he's he's doing his best to educate himself and enter spaces where he can support organizations that try to stop harm to be done to the youth but in these spaces when people find out about his past he's no longer welcomed there because his like existence is a trigger for everyone in that space and i think that's an interesting scenario and probably very not probably but like a very real scenario that happens and i feel like he's forgiven himself and he's done 
let's say theoretically he's done all the work to do better and he's educated himself do you think it's possible for him to enter a space where he can he, he essentially wants to help people but he can't do that and I think that's so interesting. What are your thoughts on that? Sorry, I didn't even ask a question. <laughs> um, I think about this because because it, it ties, spoken poorly, it sounds like victim blaming, mm-hmm. but it's but it's not. Like I, I, like, I don't know how to clarify this, so I'm going to start talking and then hopefully it clarifies. Yeah. Um, when it comes to therapy and when it comes to dealing with trauma, most of the time you at least speaking for myself, me as a victim or survivor, I am giving the trigger the power to trigger me. Like whenever I am speaking with someone or coming into contact with someone who has hurt me, in that moment, what is happening is I'm just speaking to a person. I don't have to associate the past with that person right because i'm i'm trying to do this like whole like flexible categories and identities of other people and when i put power back into my own reaction to my triggers i'm becoming a better version of myself or more more authentically myself so i'm putting power back into me which which i guess like that's that's almost the whole point of therapy. It's like you don't ever really get to work with the person that caused the harm. You can only do work with the victim or survivor. And the process of therapy is really giving the victim the power to not be as reactional as they used to be to their past triggers. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. And so I think if we empower victims to essentially take control over their reactions over their triggers like then we can create spaces for the harm doers to heal and i know that sounds really backwards but i'm saying that we should be creating spaces for both the victim and the harm doers because if we're really trying to create a safe space it's not enough to just shove harm doers outside of our communities because they're going to hurt other people. Like we have to help heal them as well. And that is really hard to do. And I don't, I don't, I don't ask of that from other victims, but personally that's like the vict- the victim. <laughs> that's the road that I'm trying to take is trying to forgive my harm doers because in the long run, being to being able to accept that they only made a mistake also allows me to realize that I make mistakes and that like if I can forgive them, I'm also forgiving a part of myself, if that makes sense. And then when I do, it gives power to my most authentic self. I said that earlier, but that was kind of like my thoughts. I feel like this ties into the conversation of like if we live in a world where like Okay, we do. I kn- well, the answer is we live in a world where we center punitive justice, but I feel like the ideal world has um, systems of transformative justice in which there's no harm being done to the harm doers in terms of ostracization mm-hmm. or like any other form of punishment. Mm-hmm. But it's like these people are offered space to heal themselves. The end. I think like a mental image that I always put in my head God, it's a mental image. okay sorry and an imagery that I always have and I think it's always easier to see people is really just to see them as a bunch of little kids and like in in school you know when we were kids um there's a lot of the times the narrative of the bully comes and bullies someone and then we see the background story to the bully where it's like they have a lot of family issues, they're getting beat by their dad. Just like the the typical narrative of like the bully is only the bully because he's suffering. I'm just going to use he because the, the image is a boy in my head right now. Um, the bully is the bully because he's suffering outside circumstances. And when I think about that situation, that applies to everybody. Like everybody who's doing harm right now is just because they've had really bad outside circumstances that cause them to be that way, right? 
so like when I when I think about it that way from like that child perspective of like there's a bullied and then there's the bullier there's the bully and then there's the bullied bully bullied <laughs> sorry I feel like that does that's not that's not clear um that like yes like the immediate harm is on the person that's being bullied but in actuality there's also a lot of harm that comes with that's being done to the bully <laughs> i'm gonna have to fix these these terms later but but you get it <laughs> it makes me think of um oh the conversation i had about like ending the cycle of like generational harm it's like that made me think of like oh the bully's bullying because he was bullied at home which is a cycle of harm and i feel like which again this could or basically what you're saying is in every situation it can apply to if this is a cycle of harm you could be the person to end it so it's like just because your parents were bad people you don't have to be bad people and that ends the cycle and then also this ties into our conversation of like well i gave up my family so it's like i don't need to repair it i don't find an inclination to change their lives for the better because i am trying to focus on me and i'm the next generation period I feel like you were going somewhere with that. I was. What were we even talking about? Bully, bully, <laughs> bully, 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 the bullying bullies. Bully, 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 bully. <laughs> yes. And that cycle of harm. Um, ooh, this, okay, so this Im- made, immediately made me think of my current situation at work about how there is this, this peer I have who is not the best communicator in that when they give feedback, it's, it comes from a place of like, I don't sugarcoat things, you just need to do better. Which I'm just going to make the assumption that his mentor gave him feedback that way. So he just assumed that that was the kind of behavior that he should be modeling, but he should not be doing that. So I'm going to receive his feedback and apply it to my work, but not perpetuate that kind of poor communication skills when I speak to to my other coworkers. I am a supervisor, the people under those, the people I am supervising to some of this on a personal experience because for me like I was always somebody who wanted to give feedback like it's something that one I'm a very like analytical person so it always comes to me and two I've always like been listening to things like oh you need to speak up and you know fix what's wrong and like you need to start by speaking up and back then when I was in college um, the way I went about it was that I would speak up and I would have really poor communication skills and like I recognize now that like I could have spoken up in a more productive uh, manner that like centered both our conversations rather than like me pushing my views onto somebody else and the reason why I gave feedback the way I did was because like one I've always heard that you needed to speak up and two it was a lot of pent-up anger and trauma from like other situations that I was in and so that was like one way that without dealing with my trauma and anger that it like manifested in that way and speaking from personal experience like I do know that I've been through a lot of trauma and pain and so I'm sure that your coworker or the person leaving you feedback is probably doing the same and to break cycles like cycles are are there for a reason it's because it's easy to perpetuate and it's easy to follow and it takes a lot more energy to break a cycle and that is definitely asking a lot from anybody whether you're the harm doer or the harmed like it's it's a lot to do for everyone so it'll be a very slow process of us breaking all of these cycles Okay, anyways, there's going to be some rapid-fire questions, so try to keep them kind of short. Um, I think the first question I did want to ask is, what is something that you've had to unlearn in the past year? Ooh, okay, so this is in the context of customer service. In this past year, I had to unlearn that customers are customers and that workers are workers. In the sense that, like, in my head, there was always this, like, dynamic of, Okay, like we see it in TV and also just in media that there's a dynamic of these people in roles. It also relates to this one TikTok that I saw where every day this guy would go into work and he'd feel like this random side character in some other person's quest. And what I mean by this was like the narrative that I subscribed to in that like I go to work and I give someone coffee and then that's it. But I 
can be more than that. I don't necessarily have to be someone else's main character, but I can definitely be similar to the what the poet was talking about in the inauguration the other day of like being the light in the world or whatever is I don't necessarily have to make this random person's whole life but I can definitely try to make their like be a nice little good moment in this next 10 minutes while they're in the cafe I'm gonna compliment them and hopefully I can spark joy in some little small talk the antithesis to the question what I learned is that I have more power as a stranger than I think I do favorite or most meaningful piece and why the first piece that came to mind when you asked that for some reason I don't know why it's I don't know if this is like a true answer but it is a answer and I'm gonna give it and you're gonna like it (laughs) so right before I left Virginia at like nationals or the finals whatever it's called for this competition I was at my team won with this number I wasn't even in it but like I was so happy for my teammates. It was this, it was Cell Block Tango, if you know that one. It's from the musical Chicago, and it was like the, oh, I suddenly forgot every lyric to that song. But it was so good, and I was so happy for them. One, because, like, they were generally having fun. And two, they were genuinely surprised that they won. So it just felt like a, a memory of people experiencing joy performing, not for competition, but just performing, doing what they love. It was a memory of authenticity, if you will. Okay, and to add to that, can you think of a moment that you've experienced joy recently? I feel like something small. Okay, so in the context of this pterodactyl, there's, it's really hard to find joy. And usually, like, the biggest joy of my life is dancing, and I haven't really been dancing. So the main thing in my life is work, since I work almost every day. But a joy that I have in my life is, which is going to sound really cheesy, but you already know this because I talk about my manager all the time, but I love my manager a joy that I have is whenever I enter an interaction with him he ends it with I'm proud of you I mean like context or maybe maybe there's not even why maybe there's just him as a person but I've definitely had a conversation with him where I shared that like I feel anxious a lot especially being in the position that I am as a supervisor but I appreciate it a lot and it brings me a sense of joy every time I have a conversation about my development with him he always ends it with I'm proud of you um Dance is sandwiches. I am Justine. Alex. I am loved. To end this, I really wanted to make a practice out of supporting an organization that's doing activism work. So, what is one organization that you want to promote and that we can donate to? So, the first organization that comes to mind is because I attended an event today. It was United We Dream. Follow them on all. It's UWB on Instagram. I definitely recommend. And essentially, they're an organization that pushes for the spread of information, but also like the liberation of immigrants. Every time I talk to Alex, I just feel like I'm learning something new about the world and something new about myself. So I hope that you found that conversation as insightful as I did. There were a lot of great takeaway points, but I think something that sticks with me is that shame is not just a bad thing. It tells you what you can improve on, and I think that is a really nice mentality to approach it with. Lastly, just another affirmation for him, but he's really just changed my life as a whole and I'm so grateful to be friends with him and to live with him and yeah, just to have these conversations with him on the daily and not just for this podcast. So thank you, Alex, and thanks to everybody that is listening. I hope to catch you next week.